by the way, my name is Sam. Hi. Uh, I'm one of the leaders here at Watermark. Uh, Tommy, who is our pastor, is out this morning. And we're going to uh, take a break from Matthew. I know this morning we didn't have a scripture reading, which was scandalous. Uh, Mickey called me a heretic for not doing that. But, you know, each to their own. Anyhow, this morning uh, we'll look at how Jesus saved us and reconciled us to God. So there's several views. Uh, we won't look at them all. We just, we just won't, don't have enough time. But what we will do is within that context, we'll look at the grand narrative of the Bible and look at what Jesus did on the cross from that lens and look at the overarching theme and how it all connects together, right? So the, so the big picture story basically is how God rescued us and defeated evil and what that means for us. So, and then we're going to look at what's our responsibility. Uh, what is our call? What is our vocation? Uh, like they were saying about the kinship market. Um, you know, because as you'll see, we're not just extras or side characters uh, in this story, um, this is definitely a story of God, but this is also a story of us. Uh, and hopefully all the different pieces will sort of fit together nicely at the end, okay? So let's pray and uh, get started because there is a lot to go over. Um, so yeah, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this morning. Uh, thank you, Lord, for this community. Um, help me to speak clearly, uh, to tell your story as clear as possible. Anything that is not of you, let it be forgotten. And I just pray for those who are here, and I pray for those who couldn't make it today, and I pray for your spirit to be with us and open our eyes to what you have to show us today. Pray in your name. Amen. All right. So to start, uh, we're going to look at the theology of atonement. And it, it basically is this understanding of what Jesus did on the cross, what he did, and how he reconciled us to God. And as I said, there's several perspectives, um, why so many you ask, and... Um, well, we're going to get into that a little bit, but there's a really good book, actually, from Scott McKnight, who's coming next week, uh, called uh, Community of Atonement, and he actually uh, talks about the different perspectives of God and how each of them are sort of like golf clubs in a golf bag, and so for different situations, you would use different perspectives of the atonement uh, in this way. So each atonement model sort of looks at the situation of what Jesus did on the cross, and it's sort of designed to solve different problems uh, within different contexts of salvation. So, however, here's the thing. The, the dominating perspective is called penal substitutionary atonement. Penal as in penalty, substitution to mean that Jesus died in our place, right, uh, for our sins as a substitute for us. And many of us sort of who grew up in the church uh, believe this since many just preach this sort of as the only way of looking at what Jesus did. The penal substitution idea, some of it was, you know, there a little bit in the early church. Um, however, it didn't really come into fruition until the 11th century and were refined and reformed since then, uh, definitely in the Reformation period. And it's generally believed that the early church actually didn't teach this way. So in 11th century, there was this guy named Alsum. Uh, he wrote a book. Um, arguing that Jesus died as a substitute for human beings to satisfy the debt that we had to God. Uh, the thought was that Adam and Eve disobeyed and broke God's rule and dishonored God. And every human that came after Adam and Eve did the same. And they were just incapable of doing what is right. Also, God is very just. He's so perfect in his righteousness that he cannot forgive us without some sort of form of payment or punishment or sacrifice. 
He can't let it go because there's no way for a, a just God to behave in this matter. Now, afterwards, this idea grew and people started teaching that not only is he disappointed at us, he's angry at us. He's upset. This is the picture that came up when I looked at Google. Um, I know, it's a little freaky, actually. It scared me a little bit. So, so not only is he disappointed, but he's also upset, angry at our sins. And in fact, our sins make God so angry that we're not even allowed in his presence. So now it's not about just about payment. It's actually also about punishment. And so humans have to pay for their crimes against God. And he couldn't just send us to hell right now uh, to burn for all eternity. And that would be considered fair. Later on, John Calvin taught that the crucifixion is the penalty that humans deserve. And Jesus had to face God's vengeance to satisfy his wrath. So this theory uh, developed further in the Reformation, and and it's pretty pretty popular since then. And I I remember reading a sermon uh, by Jonathan Edwards, I think it was somewhere around 1700s, that this guy preached the sermon uh, called The uh, Sinners in the Hands of the Angry God. Uh, I wasn't even like in a Christian school, it was a public school, and I don't know why we were reading this, but it, it was just fascinating uh, to hear this, where it talks about how, it, in his sermon, been so famous about the wrathful, angry God, where we, the sinners, are hanging by a, a slender thread under, uh, where under us is just the lake of fire, where we're ready to burn, and God is ready to drop us in any moment. And, and his sermons were so famous famously insightful in some ways where people will in the middle of the sermon will will cry out and, and, and would mo- will, will will yell and like what can we do and and there were several times where uh, Jonathan Edward had to stop in his sermon just because of the, the the response and the feedback that he got all right not sure why kids in school had to read it but there it was anyhow and and many churches still today teach this and I'm sure many of you sort of grew up with I mean, the amount of guilt and shame some preachers had to put to, you know, get the kids in front of the altar, get a bunch of people to come to the altar to raise your hands or whatever. And I, I remember, uh, you know, like youth pastors and in, in camps and summer camps or whatever it is. And after a passion play and Jesus is on the cross and, you know, the youth pastors pointing at the cross is like, you did this, you did this, cry now. You know, like that's sort of the, that's a little exaggeration. But that's sort of um, how it felt like where, where they were trying to get this emotion out of us in a way. And the idea was that the blood had to be shed. The sacrifice had to be made because it was required to satisfy God's wrath or appease his justice because he is so holy. And so Jesus had to stand between us and Father God and make God less angry of our sins because someone had to pay. Right? He needs to be appeased before we can be forgiven. And uh, Martin Luther notes that he was actually terrified of the God the Father because of this. So this view of atonement emphasized that Jesus was punished in our place to be saved. And this way we can escape hell and go to heaven. And it's almost as if Jesus was saving us from God himself. Now, there are issues, serious issues of looking at God this way. First, it restricts salvation to just Jesus' death on the cross. And if that's the case, what about his life? What about his ministry? Is that meaningless? Why couldn't he have just been born and died in a corner somewhere? And would have that been fine for us all? Uh, Secondly, the strangeness of this is almost as if God had to save us from himself. 
And in this model, he is a God to be feared um, in the most serious way possible. I can sort of imagine God as this sort of abusive dad and Jesus as the mom or sibling who is shielding us and protecting us from this physical or verbal abuse from the Father God because maybe you messed up somehow. So you can see how unhealthy this way of looking at God is. And also, if you're looking at it from this legal framework, Jesus had to pay for suffering for our sins. And so you ask the question, is that really forgiveness? Right? I mean, forgiveness means releasing a debt. But this way, God is collecting from someone else and making someone else pay who is innocent. You know? And it makes you question, are we really forgiven? Uh, Let's say student loans. I have student loans. A lot of you have student loans. We all live in student loans. Just swimming in student loans. Anyhow, (laughs) let's say Sally Mae or whoever owns it or whoever owns the debt now uh, says, you're forgiven. You get a letter in the mail that says, you're forgiven. But it says, in order to be forgiven, your parents have to pay. And you're like, that doesn't make any sense. I guess unless you're one of those celebrities, right? Okay, all right, all right, sorry, all right, my bad, this is the wrong crowd, okay. Another important point is that this view also flows out of our understanding of redemptive violence, uh, which basically means that the big problem in this world have to be solved by violence. There's some who would argue, such as Gregory Boyd, that this empowers people to violence and give permission to solve problems by violence. And he knows this in uh, his book, uh, Cross Vision, that the idea of uh, redemptive violence was introduced with this thinking in the 11th century. And he says this, it surely is not a coincidence that soon after the myth of redemptive violence was introduced into the church's thinking about the atonement in the 11th century, there were five centuries of almost nonstop church-sanctioned violence. Right? This religious wars in the medieval period and the crusades and all that. So lastly, I would say that this way of seeing God shows him in a light that's all about retribution. Someone had to pay. This is very much contrary to how we understand God, who is all about restoration and redemption. I was once blind, but now I can see. I was lost, but now I, can, I am found. And so before I get sort of faulted in this caricature... Um, In the critique of this view, there are great, I think, historical problems. And I know many who have walked away from uh, God that seems to focus on uh, retribution. Again, I'm not denying Jesus didn't die for our sins. He absolutely did. But I would argue that many have left the church because of this view. I remember one time at happy hour, and this is when your colleagues actually talk about God and issues and stuff like that, which you're not supposed to talk about at work. And, and she was telling me how she left the church and her parents' faith just because of this, the vitriol, the, the, the anger and the hatred and the bitterness. And she said it with such unforgiveness and bitterness that she says, I will never raise my children in that environment. For a belief system where forgiveness is fundamental, it doesn't seem to be that, that there's that much forgiveness and grace in some people, right? We see in uh, John... Chapter 3, verse 16. We see this everywhere. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Um, N.T. Wright argues that the trouble with the popular version is that it can easily be heard saying that God so hated the world 
that he killed his only son. So prior to the 11th century, many followers of Jesus believed that Christ died not to free us from God's wrath, but to free us from Satan's wrath and the powers of this world. There is this fundamental understanding that Jesus came to defeat the evil and to make things right in his creation. This is known as Christus Victor, which is Latin for Christ Victorious or Christ the Victor. And it was how many in the church sort of viewed atonement for thousands, for a thousand years until Alsom in the 11th century. So now to unpack this understanding of Jesus defeating the powers of this world, we have to step back and sort of see the big picture, the grand narrative of the Bible. And it will help to explain how we should understand atonement in terms of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and, and, and its significance, right? So we're, we have to start at the beginning, like literally the beginning. You all know the story of Adam and Eve. God created humans in his image. Uh, in, in chapter 1, verse 27, God created uh, mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And they lived in the Garden of Eden, which seemed to be a place where heaven and earth converged, where God and humans were together. And this is in, in uh, chapter 2. Verse 4, this is the account of the heavens and the earth where they were created, where the Lord God made the earth and heavens. And the creator seemed to be very present in his creation because you see this in the following chapter in verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as God was, as, as God was walking during the, in the garden in the cool of the day. Right? So this garden of Eden seemed to be where heaven and earth met. And his presence was there. He was, his presence was very um, absolute. And it was where God and humans were together living, dwelling in this space. And, and unfortunately, what happened is humans decided to follow something else other than God. And this heaven and earth merging reality was disrupted and divorced from each other. Uh, in, the, in, in the same uh, verse in 8, where it says, they hid from the Lord God. Among the trees of the garden. And what actually happens is eventually they decided to do their own thing. And were exiled from the garden of Eden. Or Adam and Eve was. And there was the separation of us and God and earth and heaven. All right. What you see here is a story that parallels very much with the story of Israel. Here they were given the promised land. They had a covenant to be faithful to God. And it wasn't a one-sided deal. It was, in essence, a partnership of how we understand marriage, right? It was, in essence, of, of keeping the covenant intact, and they went into exile because they were cheating on God. And similar to how Adam and Eve were exiled from Garden of Eden. And in this story, God enters into covenant of Israel. Most notably, we see in, uh, with Abraham, God makes the promise in uh, chapter 12, Genesis, where the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's house, and the land I will show you. I'll make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will take your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you, and all the people on earth will be blessed through you, And that's the most important part of this is that the nations and, and, and all the world will be blessed through this covenant with Abraham. And so there seems to be this powerful calling and vocation here to call people of Israel to bless all the people on earth through him. And later on, we'll, exa- we'll get into a little bit more into how God plans to do that. 
But here it was in this covenant with Israel, which was supposed to be, Israel was supposed to be the chosen nation to save the world. However, they fell into idolatry over and over again. They continued to choose other gods. They, you know, and not only that they became power of this world, they aligned themselves with the evil of this world. They showed injustice to their fellow humans. And what we see is that heaven and earth, human and God, were separated And that's where exile comes into play. And so exile, huge issue, right? Israel's sins were responsible for exile. Theologically speaking, this is what brought death and destruction. Uh, In it is Israel's lack of faithfulness to the covenant and failure of their calling and vocation. Because, see, Israel and humans were created for a purpose. They had a vocation. Right, And what happened is they turned away from this purpose and failed the vision that was set before them. Exile was the reality of the sin. The word sin in the New Testament translates to sort of missing the mark. And in this grand purpose of story of the Bible, it was not simply to keep rules or make sacrifices, but to be image bearers to reflect the beauty of the creator. And Israel was to be this connection of the blessing of the world as we saw in the promise of Abraham. So their, their keys... They were the key to sort of bringing heaven and earth together again. And we're told that Israel actually does a few things that are significant uh, in this grand story that leads us ultimately to Jesus. And in order to get to that part, uh, there are certain symbols in the Bible that are crucial, uh, which is king, the temple, and sacrifice. So we'll look at each of them. Uh, in First Samuel, you see this launching of kings and how it all started because prophet Samuel was getting old, right? Samuel was trying to get his sons to leave, but they weren't like Samuel, right? They, were, they weren't listening to him, and the elders came to him and told him, hey, you know, could you appoint a king? We want you to appoint the king uh, so that we can be like other nations. So they reject God as king and decide to have their own. And we see this in 1 Samuel. As Samuel gets old, they want a king like other nations. They want a king that leads them into battle like other nations. Secondly, the temple. Uh, The temple where God and humanity connects, right? Where heaven and earth meet. It was also the center place of Israel's national identity. It was planned by King David, actually built by King Solomon. And within the temple... There were the holy of holies, the most holy place where God and heaven met. And in order for the high priest to enter it, he had to make a sacrifice. Animal sacrifices, to be specific. You see some instructions in Leviticus. It's a very thrilling read. Um, If you can't sleep at night, try reading some. Uh, Actually, true story. My nine-year-old sometimes like, hey, Dad, I can't really sleep. You know that I can't sleep. I'm like almost 10 now, and I, I need to sleep later than, you know. Nine or ten or whatever, and I'm like, okay, well, why don't you? And I give him anti right book, and he's like, that. And the next day, he's like, that it worked. Like I fell asleep, but the book was so boring. <laughs> I went to anyhow, true story. Anyhow, sorry, uh, the sacrifice in the Hebrews. He it lays out uh, in uh, chapter nine, verse eighteen to twenty-two. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of the calves together with water, scarlet wool, branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant where God had commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in the ceremony. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. 
So the sacrifice was a way to make things right. So basically, they got all the animals. So, so you know, uh, if we did this today, we would get all the, it's usually domesticated animals, so sorry to say that. But all the chickens, all the chickens that in Seminole Heights in the backyard, we would bring them. We would make sacrifices. And we would sprinkle the blood over the, the, the piano and the guitars and all the stuff that we're using in our first ceremonies. Because everything had to be uh, sort of covered in blood, right? Now, Israel, time and time and again, failed in their vocation. And what happened is they worshipped other gods. And in turn, Israel continued in exile both spiritually and physically. So this was a huge problem. Here is God who is continually trying to work and accommodate with the people of Israel and humanity. And overall, as you will see. And what happens is God does something incredible, right? This is, a, this is where the story sort of takes a turn. It appears of this is sort of where it's almost all, all these symbols uh, and the grand narrative is setting up for Jesus. In Matthew chapter 1, it says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. God with us. Something happens as Jesus performs miracles and raises the dead. And something changes with his life and death and resurrection. Not just in the spiritual realm, but in our physical space. In our space, time, and matter. And what Jesus does is he takes these symbols and gives new meaning with a new covenant. He challenged our understanding of it. And he claimed authority over it. So let's go back to Israel's understanding of king, temples, and sacrifices. Remember, God was to be our king. But there was a resounding rejection of God to have our own way and for Israel to be a, have a human king. And people might have assumed that God was all about king because you see in Old Testament where God continues to work with Israel. But in actuality, he was accommodating the people of Israel and working with them where they were at. And unfortunately, it still did not work out. And in this story, Jesus comes down and becomes our priestly king who liberates us and all of humanity in, from exile. Declaring the kingdom of God and, and healing those who were sick, performs miracles. And people are astounded by this kingdom of God declaration. And even though most at this time when Jesus came are expecting a kingdom like King David and Solomon... It's not, lost on the, it's not lost on them what the Messiah meant, right? And what he was doing. The, the temple as well. In the story uh, of David and Solomon, there is a mention uh, of God asking the temple to be built in his name. God seemed to be okay with a tent. You know, he seems like a very outdoorsy kind of guy. Loves hiking, being atop of the mountains. Like, I think sometimes, like, Moses, at his age, I'm like... I wonder if he was thinking as he's climbing uh, the mountain, like, why couldn't God give me the top ten or the ten commandments in like on a small hill? You know, just like, why did it have to be all the way up there? But anyhow, sorry, there he had a really long journey, right? But as Jesus enters the story, he becomes the temple. He becomes the ultimate symbol. Uh, he becomes the ultimate symbol uh, of heaven and earth coming together. We see this in Second Corinthians chapter five, verse nineteen, where you know. Uh, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sin against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. 
We also see in Mark uh, chapter 12, verse 10, the stone which the builders rejected had become the cornerstone. And this is a quotation from Psalm 118, a psalm about building the temple, celebrating the temple, and what ultimately sacrificing in the temple. And what Jesus is showing us is he's building the final, ultimate temple, which is him. So Jesus is not only... Uh, who becomes the priestly king, but also the new and final temple. He fulfilled the function of the temple by dying on the cross. So making the temple obsolete, there's no need for it. And a few decades later, the physical temple was actually destroyed by Romans. Let's look at sacrifice. Animal sacrifice was pretty normal. There were even human and child sacrifices in many of the uh, ancient worlds. Uh, You would even see this in ancient literature and Epic of Gilgamesh, even before uh, some of the the writing that predates uh, some of the early writings of the, the Bible. But as the story progresses, we see that the sacrifices humans have been making uh, just was not cutting it. It became meaningless. Uh, we see in Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. We see in Micah chapter 6, verse 6 through 8, with What shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings of calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with the thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And what kind of sacrifice is he looking for in place of animal sacrifices? He's looking for contrite heart. He's looking for justice where we take care of the widows and the poor. And Jesus offers himself as the ultimate sacrifice and dies a criminal's death. And what he is doing is taking these ancient symbols, right? He's taking these ancient symbols and breathing new meaning into them. What's fascinating here is that Jesus' death and sacrifice is not on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, right, which is known uh, as the Day of Atonement. And you would think it makes perfect sense because that's the day Israel made their atonement and sacrifice to God. It was the day that the priests could enter the Holy of Holies uh, where heaven and earth interlocked. But he did not choose to do this during the Day of Atonement. In this grand way of retelling the story of Israel and showing that he is doing something far greater uh, than just taking over the Roman rule, but to deal with people's sin and kick off a new creation. He does this in this during the Passover. And the Passover started with the Israelites being liberated from slavery of Egypt. And why is this significant? Because it means the exile is over. Sin has been dealt with. Death has been destroyed. And the powers of this world have been defeated, and there's no reason to live in fear. In Matthew, it says, uh, chapter 20, verse 28, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give life as a ransom for many. And here is Jesus in Passover, uh, you know, before his death on the cross, where his followers had some inclination that something big was about to happen. Remember entering with the Jerusalem on a donkey and with much fanfare, with palm branches and all that. And Jesus had a meal with his disciples and told them to take this bread. This is my body and this is my blood and told them that this was the new covenant. And so with Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, new covenant was being launched with the power 
of self-sacrificial, self-giving love. This is at the very heart of this new hope and victory uh, that gave the that gave the world sort of sort of defeating the Satan and the powers of this world. And with death and resurrection, we have to understand that how these dark powers and of this world were sort of overthrown, where kingdom of God is sort of ushered in and new covenant is born. We see Paul explain this in Romans, almost in absolute terms. In all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor any else of all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The creation itself was restored to its original purpose and God made things right. And heaven and earth and God and humanity were brought back together. In Jesus Christ. To put it another way, humans have been infected with a virus, but in some ways, all these sacrifices, the temple, and how we practice, we're just treating the symptoms. And what Jesus was doing, dying on the cross, living his life, and preaching what he did, and the resurrection was the vaccine to totally eliminate sin and free people from exile. So the issue, I think sometimes in this critique of penal substitutionary atonement is that our understanding of Jesus dying on the cross had been reduced to simply thinking that an angry God had to make someone pay or being rescued from earth and simply escaping earth and going to heaven and not seen as God's kingdom of God coming down on earth as it is in heaven because the goal was seen as going to heaven, not kingdom coming down to earth, right? And so believing that Jesus was punished and died to satisfy God's wrath so that we could go to heaven shortchanges what Jesus actually did. Uh, Now, understanding what Jesus did on the cross in this way opens us up. It liberates us to freely serve, not to live in fear of an angry God who is bent on retribution, but we serve a God who is bent on love and self-sacrificial life. So then we, we have been rescued And the kingdom of God is here. But what are we saved for? Right? Which comes to this idea of the kingdom of God here already, but not yet. Uh, I think we talked about this a couple times with with, uh, Pastor Tommy and when Aaron was here, I believe. I I was showing my kids a YouTube video. There's a a YouTube channel called uh, The Bible Project. Uh, great organization, and I, it's not just for kids. I mean, I, I get stuff out of them as well, but they have really good animation, so it keeps my kids sort of, you know, I try to go through the Bible with them, and they have themes of the Bible. And I was showing them a, a video, I think, regarding sacrifice and atonement, and Joa, my six-year-old, asked the question, uh, well, if Jesus defeated sin and evil, why is there still evil in the world? And I was like, who are you, kid? It's like, sometimes I feel like he's an old man trapped in a kid's body. I just, I mean, he's still, you know, he's a kid. He loves video games and never, uh, you know, he pees on the toilet seat. I'm like, why are you doing that? Anyhow, he's a character. So as I'm trying to uh, explain things, and you know that when you're trying to explain to kids, um, it's really hard to simplify sort of these big abstract concepts. And I was surprised. He said, I get it. And he says he gets it all the time. Like, he says he knows things, you know? So, and I'm like, okay, well, 
how is it? He's like, I get it. It's like a boss fight. So he's a game. You know, he plays video games. He, has, he plays Nintendo Switch and st- stuff. And he's like, it's like a boss fight. So you beat him. You beat him in the final battle with the boss fight. But there is still few other minions left to defeat. I was like, okay, I'm not going to challenge your theology. But, you know, it seems like you're sort of there. Now, you see the vision of Bible was set for humans to be set free and to understand that we are God's image bearers. The gospel not just welcomes us, but it empowers us to be among the disciples and to be witness for what Jesus stood for. And what's fascinating about the people of Israel and their ancient temples was that there were no idols. It's because we are created in his image. The whole creation is the temple. And to announce God's kingdom is to announce that God is at last overthrowing the dark powers that enslave humanity. And Jesus is rescuing his people for a new life, a new mission in glory and in power. And so we need fresh revelation to realize that what we are called to be, it's not about doing our own thing. But to ask God, what is he already doing in the community? And what is the Spirit of God leading you to? What is He saying to you because of the new covenant? We're called to be active partners with Him, to be light of the world and salt of the earth. There is still responsibility on our side. We see this beginning of Acts. Um, in the beginning of Acts chapter 1, verse 6 through 8, right? This is after the resurrection. And they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the time and dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes to you. And you will be my witness in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to ends of the earth. So Jesus launched the new creation. Not simply to return to the original one, but similar to the story of Genesis with Adam and Eve. For us, we are to share in God's rule over creation. And Jesus brought us back on track. There is still vocation. There is still calling. There is still destiny for us fixed in this identity of the new covenant. God has not given up on his plan to bring the light of the world through Israel. Right? He is still willing to do that through humanity. And the work of the cross, he said, and, and Anti Wright said this in the day of the revolution began, the work of the cross is not designed to rescue humans from creation, but for creation. So let me end with this. Where, where there is a vocation to bring heaven and earth, to bring justice, and to able to be voice for those who don't have a voice, we cannot allow the powers of this world to seduce us with their idols. We have to stand up for those who are weak. We have to stand up uh, to those who are hurting the weak, I mean, and, and, and those who spew hatred and bigotry and racism. We have to step, step up to those who are victims of sexual violence, to those who are committing the atrocities outside the church and in the church, especially the church leaders, and to hold them accountable. You have to understand how idolatry is sort of the root of sin. And when you hear Jesus declaring the top commandments to love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself, this is antithetical to our understanding of idolatry. When you're making something else Lord over your life, how can you love Jesus and how can you love your neighbor who are carrying that image of God? So we can't be focused on ideology and in politics of this world and And we can't be blinded by the suffering of the poor and suffering of the orphans and suffering of the minorities. We just can't. 
Every week, um, as we get ready for communion, if you want to take some time to pray, there's a prayer room right out the door to the left. Someone will be there to pray for you. We do communion every week, and it's, it's, it's not meaningless ritual, uh, but it's a reminder of his sacrifice and what he did. In a world filled with meaningless hatred, um, here's something real, something you can eat and drink to remind you of the sacrifice of Jesus and how he now lives in you. And as you take communion, remember the new covenant, the new Passover, as he remembers the body of Christ broken for you and blood shed for you. You do this in memory of the sacrifice. All right, let's pray. God, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for this grand picture of what you are doing, that, that you have not gave up on us. You have not gave up on humanity, but you're here for us. Help us. Remind us of the sacrifices that you have made. Let it be drilled into our hearts and our minds, oh God, so that we can be a voice for the voiceless, that we can be a prophetic voice to the world, to our community, that we can be the helping hand, oh God, and not turn a blind eye. Empower us by the power of the Holy Spirit to be witness for your kingdom. And so I pray, oh God, let your kingdom come down to earth as it is in heaven. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In your name I pray, amen.